You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. We do talk quite a bit about price and price of wines on this podcast. And do we? I've often said that we do in our writing. Uh, we have on the podcast. Often. We, all right. I, I'd say we could say it was often. Value. Well, you know what? We should really look at value wines and stuff like that for a future podcast. Definitely. Okay. Um, but the point that I'm sort of getting to is there's nothing worse than opening up a bottle of wine and feeling ripped off. And we do have a lot of people in the province of Ontario who are pushing the envelope in terms of price. And I think it, it's a good thing because we yep. want to pull everybody up. Yep. But there is one man in the province, uh, I guess one family in the province, where the quality of the wine is so good and there's so few bottles made, I have zero qualms about spending the money on these bottles of wine. Yeah, it's those, it's, it's, it's kind of that small lot stuff that really, you know, tickles your wallet. Do you know what I mean? 100%. To realize that you're going to get, you know, one out of maybe... 200 cases yep. or less that you know you're going to be the one that has one of those bottles when everybody says oh you know what this I, I was I headed to that winery I wanted to get a bottle and they were sold out and you go you know what I've got that bottle and it's also when you go to this winery and you meet the people selling it you just want to see them succeed because they give a real crap about this industry and we're talking about uh, the Lowry family and Five Rows. And you may not have been to Five Rows, which is a shame, but they really are only open for a couple of months. Yes. Because they sell out quickly. Yes. That's a story that Wes does tell us. But Lowry, you get to taste their fruit in a lot of places. Yes, which he lists in this podcast. So here we go. We're in this really old barn. And talking with food in your mouth. Classy, as always. Yeah, well, that's what I like to do. Yeah. Especially with these great crackers here. Oh, I just love these My things. mom would be happy to hear you say that. <laughs> and she doesn't make them, right? She doesn't make them, but she's proud of what she puts out on that little platter there, so she'd be happy that you were enjoying them. I'm thrilled. So this barn is how old, first of all, before I introduce who you are? So I hate to burst your bubble. It's, it's not, not that, that old. old. It. Uh, it's in terms of barns, it was built in 2004. Okay. So uh, it's, it's. But you do have an old, old barn on the property, we right? We do have an old barn. And the on old the barn is how old? Uh, the oldest of the barns uh, on the Lowry farm uh, would be the one up at Ravine. And that one, I think, would date back whew, probably 70 to 80 years. So it's an old one. So we are thrilled to have you on. This is Wes Lowry of Five Rows, and uh, there's there's lots of history, lots of story here. This is another one of our legacy podcasts, and we've been trying for a while to get you on. And the funny part is I'd email you, and you'd answer, and then I'd answer back, and then be like radio silence for like months, and then I'm like, are you still alive? Yes. <laughs> so That tends to be my life, and especially, usually around uh, anywhere from August through to December, I maintain complete radio silence just because that usually is when uh, I'm either out in the field or, or tending to fermentations and it's, it's just craziness. So I don't think my wife sees me very much. So, so we're here. So Wes runs Five Rose Winery, which Great. is one of the, I guess, OG cult wineries. You've been making wine for a little while. You're on some very fine wine list in the city of Toronto. And, uh, and the name actually appears on more and more bottles out there. So yes. who, let's, let's go with this. Who yeah. makes wine from your fruit? And then let's talk about why your fruit is so special. So, sure. So who is making wine from your fruit? Yeah, so we're extremely proud of the relationships we've forged over the years. And I, I think it's gotten us to the point where we were confident starting our own winery. Uh, so my relationships with uh, the wineries and the winemakers that uh, we've sold grapes to through the years... Uh, has really shaped what we are today. So basically, uh, our vineyard gets split up a number of different directions. I take about maybe 10 to 15% of what we grow for the wines I make for five rows. Uh, the rest of the Lowry Vineyard fruit uh, gets split up between um, probably, let's go volume. So okay. the, the largest volume would go to, uh, I would imagine, Richie at Fielding. Gets all of our Riesling, Syrah, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, and then 
following that, we have uh, Rob from Creekside. They would get uh, the Pinot Gris and Sauvignon Blanc that I do not uh, use myself. Uh, and then comes the Pinot. So the Pinot Block, our oldest vines, the, the reason we're called Five Rows, uh, is parceled out at an even increased rate. So a row here, row there, vine here, vine there, uh, goes, I think, four different directions now. So... Uh, Thomas, who we mentioned earlier, uh, Bach Elder, uh, has been with us for a few years now. Uh, Ilya Senchuk at Leaning, Leaning Post. Post. Uh, some of his first pinots that he made for Leaning Post were made from our fruit, so we're really excited uh, that he's maintained our, our uh, grapes in his portfolio. Uh, now Richie at Fielding gets a bit of pinot from us too, so yeah. he does a very small production pinot. Um, and now also uh, Adamo Estate oh, up in... Yeah. Um, uh, up Hockley Hockley Valley, Valley. Yeah. Uh, they from our younger planting a Pinot, which uh, has uh, come into. Um, I think we were planted in 2009, so it's uh, it's a it's an up and coming block, and I really like what Sean is doing with it, and, and really excited to see where it goes in the future. Wes would be by far our youngest person for the legacy, for sure. Legacy because the legacy series of this podcast focuses on the origins, and now we're kind of at the point where you know, rubber meets the road for the Ontario wine industry, so... But I, I don't think... I don't know if your parents wanted to be on a podcast. Is that kind I, of... See, I was going to say that, that I'm really... I shouldn't be the one yeah. talking. I think I was licensed uh, by them to tell their story. Okay. Uh, they might consider themselves a little bit shy uh, to come and talk on tape. I think they would have done an amazing job, personally, and you probably <laughs> would probably a little more exciting in terms of... Uh, storytelling than me but I've, I've met them they're very personable but yeah. sometimes you put this microphone in and front of people they can shut and down. suddenly they're like I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I. So, so yeah tell us okay so it's five rows so where does the history begin with five rows why are you so iconic I yeah. guess and I, I you know we'll get to the five row part but it goes back I mean the, the farm itself has been in the family for five generations dating way back in the Lowry family it's it's you can go up to Ravine and see some of the historical uh, things that uh, the, the harbors have displayed in the barn up there and see the old pictures and, and things and, and the history of the farm. So as, as Lowry's, we've been farming fruit on this land for a very long time in St. David's. My parents' generation, um, taking over from my grandfather, uh, they worked together for a number of years, and it was a mixed grape and tree fruit farm. So plums, pears, cherries, peaches... Uh, along with the old hybrid grapes that we we all knew and loved back in the day that went to some uh, sketchy wines, let's put it that way. <laughs> Although uh, the term loved is a, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so it was all about big tonnage um, and some really interesting varieties that I will never forget the names of and, and the quirks that they had, whether it was the Saval that you had to thin the crap out of or it was the Dishonac 9549s that you had to Come on, sucker keep about five dropping, times. Keep name dropping. The Venturas, which were notorious for uh, their cropping level and um, being a really dark grape. So if you needed to darken another wine up, you just threw a little Ventura in there. Otherwise known as the Jesse grape. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Egoams, Duchess, you name them, we had them. So it was a, it was a large farm, 100 acres, uh, in which they grew a lot of those grapes. Fast forward to... A time which I can remember because I was born in 1977. So the early 80s are kind of where I start to focus in on what the farm was going to be uh, and what it what it was in, in at that time. It was a transition between when we were actually paid by the government to pull out all of those old varieties. Uh, a situation a lot like we're going through now in terms of trade and uncertainty and not knowing what was going to happen with the future of our industry. Uh, thankfully, we were uh, steered in the right direction by people like Carl Kaiser, who was starting at Inleskillen at the time, uh, to really assess, instead of maybe planting out with peaches or, or other tree fruits, to really go forward with maybe a riskier proposition of planting uh, vinifera grapes, which, truthfully, my parents would be the first to tell you this, they knew nothing about vinifera grapes outside of drinking wine. Um, were your parents wine drinkers ahead of time or were they drinking? I know you talked about sketchy wines. Like obviously we had a pretty big <laughs> local industry prior to that right. with some of the names of wineries that I can't even keep 
track of who would be yeah. making with hybrids. Like Shadow Gay and yeah, yeah, Shadow Gay and Brights they grew for them. Uh, Jordan Wines they would have grown for them. Um, Inniskillen was a newcomer at that time, and it was you know they probably started drinking or getting serious about wine uh, once they planted those first five rows of Pinot. So when they were approached by Carl, who came to the property, he knew them um, through the industry, and he all, he was at that time scouting out places from what I understand, to grow Chardonnay and Pinot. So he came to talk to my parents, and he said, based on where you're set here and the soil composition, and this is before talks of terroir in, in Niagara and, and Thomas's and all the, the people who would come, uh, he had the foresight to know that this little spot under the St. David's bench would be a good place to plant grapes and, and vinifera. So he said, do me a favor and plant this, this trial about an acre. It ended up for us being about five rows uh, of Pinot Noir, Burgundian clone, I'll source the vines, but I, I need people to grow this. My parents didn't know what they were getting into in terms of Pinot ultimately being known as the heartbreak grape, and, and uh, it's certainly broken uh, hearts through the years, ours included, uh, but they embraced it, and they saw that that was the future of how the farm needed to go. Uh, I, I give them credit for that because it was probably scary for them at the time. So... Um, the farm has grown out since then. We planted a bit more Pinot in five-year increments uh, after the success of those original five rows. And um, there was a joint pro, and it all gets tied back to Inniskillen and, and the first wines they made out of those grapes. So, I mean, it would be three years after that that um, you'd started to see some of the first wines Carl's, Carl was making and the reserve Pinots and then the Alliance project. So Carl project. was taking your parents' fruit to make reserve Pinot Noir. He had, early on, he noticed what was happening in Barrel was something really interesting. And, and he kind of kept it aside, the Lowry from the Braybrun and some of the other stuff. And that would kind of go into his reserve from what he told me. And then eventually when they started the Alliance project and they brought over the Negotiant from, uh, from Jaffelin, he came down and actually tasted the soil to get a sense for him. And I've never done it myself, but he tasted the soil and got a sense of what the terroir actually was. Well, we need that picture. Less <laughs> into the vineyard and have them actually you know, taste the soil. Actually take a, like is, yeah. a bite out of it like an apple. I probably would do that for just for you guys. Oh, that's but great. yeah. <laughs> Consider it done. And then I would spit it right back oh, out. Okay. But anyway, so they brought him in and they and the rest is history. I think Inniskillen grew a lot from the international recognition they, they got from those early Alliance Chardonnays and Pinots. Um, and thankfully for us we were a big part of it. So I think that's when my parents got into wine, knowing that people were coming up to them at, at dinners in Toronto, that they were, oh, you're the grape growers. And they, they, they treated them differently because they, they were growing these grapes and they were kind of blown away by that. So, so they got into drinking wine and maybe that helped them learn more about viniferas and what, what to plant. And then that was also shaped by these winery relationships we've had through the years. Creekside, early on. You look at our portfolio of Syrah, Sauv Blanc, Cab Sauve, are all staples at the Creekside portfolio as well. So so that, that along with those early Inniskillen days, shaped what we grow. So then you, you start planting more things beside Pinot Noir. Obviously, right. Pinot Noir is, is what you're known for, which is why yep. it is probably some of the most sought-after Pinot, even to this day. Right. Like, obviously, people like Thomas and... And, and Ilya coming down and saying, we really, you know, I'm starting a, Ilya, I'm starting a winery. I want your fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, a big deal. Thomas doing his negotiant type thing and coming down and says, I want your fruit. Mm -hmm. But at some point you go, okay, well, we're not just going to be known for Pinot. So now we're mm -hmm. going to start planting other things. What's the next thing that goes into the ground? And then what's the decision to, to plant those grapes as well? Yeah, so for us, it was Cab So That was the next um, thing in, in the pipeline. And looking back on it, I mean, I wasn't a part of the decision, but I can see uh, the guys at Creekside, whether it was Marcus at the time or Craig or even Peter Jensen, uh, really pushing that, whether it was Laura's Red or their Meritage or, or, or their Cab Sauve, um, and knowing that that needed to be part of their portfolio. So. Yeah, but I'm curious why focus on Cab Sauve. Uh, I mean, off the microphone, we were talking a little bit about the 2017 vintage and how tough it is to ripen. And yeah. I think most people in Niagara would tell you that Cab Sauve only ripens, what, is it two out of ten? Three out of ten. Three three out of ten. About three out of ten. So 
your site down here is a little bit warmer than a lot of the places. Why not plant Franck and just knock it out of the park every year with beautifully ripe Franck? Trust me, Andre, I've asked myself that same question for the last 15 years. Um, and it's something that I, I've come to embrace Cab Soap for what it is and what it can become if, if you really thin the crap out of it and, um, and treat it like you need to to ripen in a cool climate. Cab Franc was something that once I got involved in the decision making, I felt like it was a varietal that I would like to grow on our farm. So we planted some actually in 2007, and that was going to be the most beautiful block that we had on the farm. And it, it the first few years, um, I didn't trust myself as a winemaker enough to know that I could make a good Cab Franc, so it went strictly to fielding. And in 2010, 11, and 12, the first three crops, uh, which were three pretty decent vintages for, for red wines. Yeah. Um, Richie knocked it out of the park. They made some amazing Cab Franc. So in 13, I was all gung-ho that I was going to make my first Cab Franc. And a weird thing happened that the vines, when it came to the fall, all the foliage turned red. And all of the grapes kind of stopped right around 19, 20 degrees bricks. And I was kind of waiting for them to increase in ripeness and it was it wasn't a cold year by any stretch 13 but uh, it was a pretty heavy crop um and they just stopped and so we were kind of left wondering what the hell's going on i think richie made maybe made some rosé out of them that year and in subsequent years and since then we've come to find out that they were actually infected with what's we now know as red blotch virus and not to bore you with the scientific part of it but it's it's become a real problem uh in some vines where if a nursery stock is infected a whole block can become infected oh no um so we were forced to basically pull the vines out the whole cab franc block that we had uh to hopefully stop the spread to other parts of the vineyard so it's a real scary thing when you have something like that in and amongst some really old vines right next to it um but uh, it's, there's been enough time now since we pulled them out a couple years that I've started to start thinking about maybe finding some really uh, clean uh, Cabernet Franc vines and maybe looking forward to planting them in the future. But again, it's something that I'm in a comfort zone now with the 35 acres that we have. And I know how much time I can devote to each variety because I love to be out there doing That's basically what I do is bury my nose in the vineyard all year. Um, that even planting a few more rows of something might throw things off to a point where I'm out of my comfort zone. And I, I, I really have to think about it before we commit to something new. So you said you have 35 acres planted. Uh, the farm is 100 acres? The farm between... What else, what so you grow? You, when you drive in, you see there's a couple fallow fields that around here. So uh, we do grow Vidal. So that's another... Some really old vines of Vidal that we have that uh, get sold to... I got to get the name right. Artera. Okay. Artera, okay. So it's a big producer. Yeah. Um, about oh. 50 tons of Vidal. Well, obviously, <laughs> that, that's not on anybody's bottle. Yeah. You don't see, you don't see Lowry, Lowry Vidal. Vidal on anything. Except if my dad's making it. His okay. one attempt at making wine was a Vidal, and uh, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I love Vidal wines, and that's one thing. Um, if uh, if I ever wanted to make a, like a nice aromatic white, I would use some of my Vidal and just. You're talking table or ice wine, or you even just uh, make like a table wine. Either one, table wine it makes a nice wine too. It's just nice and kind so of. So how, how old is this Vidal? Just uh, the we Vidal. A, we have a scoop here, I think. Yeah, Nobody no. Knows about the Lowry the Vidal. Vidal is kind of uh, under the radar, but uh, it's part of the story too because the reason we had to leave Inniskillen was because they refused to take our Vidal. So we found somebody willing in Creekside who would take the Vidal because they wanted the Pinot. Okay. <laughs> and now um, it's kind of, again, that's, that's just the way things go in the farm and the grape industry is that when you get cut off and people don't want to buy your fruit anymore or certain large portions of your fruit, you're kind of left scrambling to, to find someone else who will take everything. Um, so, so that was, it, it's as old, if not older than, um, it, would, it would be between the Pinot and the Cab. So it would have been planted in the 90s at some point. Okay. So really old vines for sure. Wow. So then, uh, so you planted some Cab Sauve. Yep. And what's your next varietal? So the next varietal would have been the Sauvignon Blanc in and around the same time. One of um, Andre's favorite wines that you guys make. Definitely yeah. one of my favorite wines from here. Yeah, it's, it's one that surprised me in its popularity through the years. Uh, 
Uh, we make it in that barrel fermented style, blended with a little stainless, and um, each year it tends to be one of the first one that sells out. So really exciting. And then from there, obviously, uh, in front of us we have a Riesling, mm -hmm. and we, we we tasted through the lineup, which is five wines. Yep. Uh, it's a Sauvignon Blanc, a Riesling, uh, Pinot Noir, of course. Yep. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah. Yes. Uh, and then Andre and I picked our two favorite wines. Uh, Andre went white because he's just that kind of guy. Uh, and he went with this Riesling. So when when is the Riesling planted? And when yeah. do you think, you know what, this really hot spot here in the St. David's, I got I to gotta throw Riesling in the ground. Yeah. So with Riesling, um, it was planted the same time as that, that Cab Franc in 07. So it was... Uh, a time when we felt like it was a good varietal to add to the portfolio. I knew in uh, when I was working at Creekside as a vineyard um, vineyard manager slash viticulturalist and grower relations, getting out to a lot of different Riesling vineyards, it just seemed like a no fuss, no muss grape to grow. You could you couldn't really screw it up. So I thought, did it matter on the on the on the site like where it was? Yeah, like I felt like it needed to be in a spot where it wasn't overly vigorous. We've got some some sandy loamy areas that are pretty vigorous and then we've got some nice clay spots that hold back the vigor a little bit so we went with um, kind of a transitional area where it starts off the end that's closer to a ravine which is a little sandier and then it kind of transitions the further you go north into a little more clay um, and you can kind of see that in the way the growth is in, in the field but it's neat because it's kind of built in complexity within a block so um, so yeah, it was planted. Clone 49 was the one we were um, told would do best in our spot. And uh, Who told you Clone 49? Uh, so the story there is, and I had asked my mom about this, so she, I remember at the time well, just was... Sorry, just, you're, you're gilling, but there's so many people who yeah. plant and swear by Vice 21 right. all over the Niagara Peninsula and up into the, the, the bench and everything, right? So yeah. it's, it's not like we have a lot of people who are probably flying the clone 49 flag and that's yes. as geeky as this podcast will get yeah um i so there's there's a bit of a story there too that i think my mom was talking to the panachetti's about uh, riesling and who better to talk to than them uh and they had said obviously we we find on the bench the the vice is just beautiful and and we let's pause for one second if you have not taken a moment to listen to our interview with len panachetti <laughs> please bookmark this podcast right now and move to the next page. See, free plug. There you go. Uh, anyway, so we we uh, we were told that Clone 49 for them, they felt like would do better in a slightly warmer spot. So we, we know that our, our spot in St. David's is slightly warmer. So, so that was a possibility. So I do think there is an element to the story, which I haven't mentioned to you yet, that there may have been a plan to do both. Okay. But the shipping container coming across from Europe with the vines might have fallen into the ocean. No. And when the vines finally came, whether it was for Anna and uh, Cave Spring and then somewhere to come to us, um, we were left with the Clone 49. So we've had to embrace it with, uh, with our flag flying. Um, oh, and it. I honestly, um, the more I'm learning about it, and I mentioned earlier, the, more, the older this planting gets, it's relatively young, maybe seven, eight years old, uh, nine years old now, um, it's really showing more aromatic punch every time we make one. Well, um, this is so. This is from 2017, which was yep. cool and wet, and the leaves were growing, so it was definitely yes. a lot of vineyard management. But the concentration of the fruit that comes out of this, like it's mm -hmm. got a nice complexity to it. It's more orchard fruit, not just citrus fruit. Uh, beautiful balance and off dry. I'll have the notes posted on my on my site shortly. So this is probably the, one of the last grapes you plant. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when does the winery start? Yeah. So that's a good good way to look at it too. So that if the, these are planted in 07, the winery was in the works. So the first wines I made specifically for an, a yet to be named winery was when I was still working at Creekside uh, as a viticulturalist. The boys let me go into the cellar uh, and toy around with barrels of cab stove so I'm looking at my library on the wall over there and I see 04 and 05 those were the first wines that they those guys helped me kind of blend two barrels and that was 50 cases and that was what we started the winery with in I think 2009 was the first year we actually opened the door of this barn um, 
to sell wine out of. So we released some 07 whites, which would have been Sauvignon and Pinot Gris. And then we also released that 04 cab to start the winery out. So, so the, the, the planting of the Riesling is basically we want to make some Riesling because we are starting a winery, not because somebody is saying, exactly. we really need your fruit. It, the Cab Franc and the Riesling represented, like I said before, a departure from the winery telling us what to plant, me being selfish about what I wanted to plant, which was what I felt like was going to do well here, but also varieties that I know are going to be staples going forward based on the climate that we have and not Syrah and Sauvignon, which are so winter sensitive and Pinot, which is, as we all know, is the most labor intensive variety you can grow and Pinot Gris, same thing. Um, and Cab Sauv, you're pushing it to get it ripe at the end of every year. So I was looking for something that was a little more, um, not easy, but also, but just kind of fit in the portfolio uh, as well from my winery's perspective, not all these other people that we grew for. So Wes, let's just pause a little bit about where we're at with the winery being started and talk mm -hmm. a bit about you. Okay. Um, your fifth generation farming this, this land. Mm -hmm. uh, when did you know you wanted to get involved in the farming, especially given proximity to Toronto? I mean, there's a lot of other things that you could do that would probably make a little bit more money. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, and be easier. Yeah, and I... Like work at Tim Hortons. <laughs> well, there were no Tim Hortons. There was no Gateway Niagara back then. I mean, it's relatively new for St. David's to have a Tim Hortons. But no, I, I knew from an early age that I loved being on the farm. Did I love working on the farm? Not necessarily. Did I love driving tractors? Absolutely. Um, that was what I loved to do. I, growing up, uh, some of my earliest memories are of being on the tractor with my dad and then having to be to go to bed early when it was still light out and hearing him go back out with the tractor and being jealous that he got to go back out. Then high school comes and I'm happy to go off to university, the University of Guelph, and I was a bit of a science uh, mind at that time. I, I thought about maybe working in the medical field and uh, my degree was in microbiology. So it wasn't until I got into wine that people started telling me, you know, Niagara and St. David's make some pretty amazing wines. And they'd actually tell me about wines that they knew about uh, from my own vineyard, which I knew nothing about. Um, so I set out to kind of learn what was making those wines special. And when I finished at um, Guelph, luckily for me, uh, the Covey program was just starting a master's component. So I was able to, to work with Andy Reynolds uh, for a couple of years and, and do a master's and really through a back door kind of learn how to make wine. So in my project, uh, which was on irrigation of all things, uh, I made wines from all the trials. So we were working with Chardonnay from down in Niagara-on-the-Lake and I got to learn how to make wine while going to university uh, and taking some courses on wine appreciation. So it was the perfect kind of learning ground uh, for me to get passionate about grape growing, and then that's when it really hit for me. I spent a summer working with my parents back home on the farm, um, and I haven't left since. I mean, I finished at Brock, and um, I have left to go work in Nova Scotia at a small winery out there to, to, to learn Which the winery? trade. And uh, Blomidon Estate, so oh, way yeah, out in Canning. Yep. Yeah, awesome little spot. And that was the part of my development that helped me learn about running a small winery because I got to basically run the show be the winemaker, manage the vineyard, uh, which is kind of the hats I have to wear now. Uh, and all things considered, it was a great place to be to learn my trade and, and feel confident coming back to Ontario in 2007 that I could do it here as long as my parents were willing. And thankfully uh, for me, they were. Um, do you so, yeah. remember the first wine that you had that was kind of an aha moment where it was just like you're going from being curious and and like happy to be on the tractor to I need to I need to make this my life yeah do you, do you have one wine that stood up whether it's local or yeah I or from overseas I mean it's just like there's got to be a wine that if you can remember yeah well an early one for me was uh the Alliance. I mean my parents had some of those early 1992 or 93 Alliance that were in our cellar and I think I snuck one out one time uh Reason. For a party in the woods. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you why I snuck it out. And, 
but anyways, uh, probably for the wrong reason. What was her name? <laughs> no comment. Uh, if she's out, yeah, no, I'm not going to get into that. But anyways, I snuck out. I snuck it out, and um, I had it. And I remember thinking, like, this is really good, but I don't know anything about what Pinot Noir or what good wine should taste like. So then, fast forward to some wine classes that I took uh, when I was at Guelph. Uh, under Joe Barth, who was the beverage management guy there. Um, I don't remember the producers, but there was a Sauvignon Blanc that we tried. And maybe that kind of has always been in the back of my mind since I tried it. It was just so different from any white that I tried to that point in terms of aromatics. And it was probably a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or something like that. But um, I can almost taste it and, and smell it right now based on how you know it stuck with me. Um, is that what influences your Sauvignon Blanc? Or? Not really. Okay. I, I think uh, <laughs> that influence would come more from uh, Rob and Craig, who were at Creekside and uh, back in my formative years when I was there. So, um, yeah, I, and I'm definitely more of a farm geek than a wine geek when it comes to um, my worldly wine knowledge. So I'm probably not the best one to ask in terms of producers and regions and styles, but um, I'm definitely learning how to make wine from my fruit uh, on a yearly basis. So I'm surprised that Andre hasn't asked this question because uh, I didn't see your ears perk up when he mentioned, first of all, Chardonnay. And then I haven't heard you mention Chardonnay at all. Right. And is there a reason <laughs> why you've said, you know, no Chardonnay in this vineyard? Or does it come back to the too many, too many grapes at the moment. Yeah, too little or the time. Sauvignon Blanc is just so kick-ass. Who misses Chardonnay? <laughs> you do. Yeah, you know I, you do. Chardonnay is a funny one because I've grown to love Chardonnay. I love Chardonnay. I love Me it too. oaked, unoaked, whatever. And then different clones and all, all the growers I know um, love growing it. And it can, you can have disease pressure at, at times, but it's, it's a relatively consistent and, and great grape to grow. Having said that, at the time when there, we probably could and should have planted it, there was such a glut of Chardonnay that the price was so way down and wineries wouldn't buy it that it was, we were told not to plant it and that we couldn't sell it. And I didn't have a winery yet, so it just never was in the cards. Now, again, I always say different varieties, but if, if I had to plant something tomorrow, I probably would look seriously into Chardonnay. And I've mentioned that to other people um, in a serious way that even just a, like a small planting or something just to see what it would do on our site. I do have some really old Chardonnay vines in our old Pinot block that I'm, I don't have the heart to remove. So our Pinot will always have a few shard vines in there. I should maybe not say that, but it always does. I don't have the heart not to use that fruit, even if it's a little bit. <laughs> so it's the fruit you take that ends up. It, it, I do use them. It's made, like I say, maybe three or four vines out so of the whole. Okay. So it's a field blend. Yeah, exactly. basically what it is. But they're the most beautiful old big trunk chardonnay vines that you'd ever see and i don't have the heart not to how did they them. end up planted in the first place like chardonnay isn't like a, a, a mutant no and cousin in fact, of pinot oftentimes and you might have heard this through your travels but you plant a block and then there's the odd miss vine so when you get a, a bundle of vines sometimes one just for whatever reason they grafted the wrong um clone onto the wrong rootstock and you get this oddball red in a white field or white in a red field or different varietals. So it happens quite a bit. So this brings me to uh, my favorite of your of your wines was this Syrah. So um, it would have been a no-brainer for us to talk about Pinot and try your Pinot. And, it's been done. Yeah, been there, it's done been that. there, done that. <laughs> but it's like, you know, in Cab so it's Cab so I yeah. mean, but you're planning Syrah and, and I, I just, I love this wine because to me, it's got that purity of, of Syrah, mm -hmm. uh, the black pepper, the, uh, the smoky, uh, the meaty notes. Like it's, it's everything that you you want when you see the word Syrah on a label. Right. So the question, obviously, <laughs> what makes you go, yeah, yeah, Syrah, Ontario, it's got to yeah. be a great idea. Yeah, and I, again, that's that's another tricky one, uh, variety, uh, portfolio based with winery we were working at in Creekside, and for years we called it Shiraz, and it was Shiraz, we had labels of Shiraz, which I still have upstairs, but um, you have five rose labels that say Shiraz. I do. It's a collector's item. Uh, I'm so happy <laughs> to see that term almost eradicated from the, the province, though. Yeah, and that you know, to me, I 
when we were growing for Creekside and they were making Shiraz, it was always Shiraz to us as grape growers. So we just called it Shiraz and we started. But the blowback from when we first released our Shiraz, I think the first one was in 08. And it was a lot like this one, very meaty, very peppery. And people just said, you can't call it Shiraz. It's a Syrah for sure. Yep. And you ha you should go forward. And I, I was surprised at the passion of the people that were coming in and tasting it. And they would tell me it's from this producer in Rhone that I, I really see some some striking similarities. Um, so I've come to, you know, try to learn a little bit about Syrah and in different parts of Rome. But um, yeah, it's it's a fun wine to make because it's a unique place to be growing Syrah, but it's, it's a beast unto itself yep. in terms of um, the versatility there. We talked about years like 2010 and 12 being more fruit forward where you get a, like just a very interesting fruit note being more prominent. And then maybe as it ages, it kind of flip flops between the meaty and smoky and peppery notes. Whereas this one, this, this 15 that we're tasting now, which has only been in bottle for a few months now, um, really will be interesting to, to watch over time and see how it evolves. Uh, because like I said before, it, it can sometimes flip where it, that fruit that you're tasting on the palate mm -hmm. might become more prominent on the nose. But so even um, from when we tasted this about an hour ago, yeah. there's so much it's more fruit that it's yeah, I'm noticing see, that. See, up. see, to me, that's my Lionel Richie wine, you know, all night long, <laughs> all night with this thing. And I would just, you yeah. know, find something different every sip. Yeah. Layers for sure. Yeah. So I, I guess we should go back to some of the, the historical things. Sure. If there was a grape that you have in the ground right now that you mm -hmm. wish you had not planted <laughs> is there one uh let me think about that i my immediate uh political answer is probably to say no uh that <laughs> i i they're all of them i have love for it's like your kids how could you choose oh that's the biggest lie to bullshit but, i've ever heard but in any year there is one variety that will always give you a pain in the ass to the point where the next year you're so convinced you're either going to pull it out or just sell it to somebody else. You, you do want to turn your back on it. But then something magical happens, whether it's a wine or, or something you'd written off. Um, for me, it was 2009 Cab Sauv. It was a, just a cold year. It was too, I went through the whole vineyard and picked just the ripest bunches to make two barrels. And I said, if this doesn't turn out, I'm going to dump it behind the barn. Like This is just terrible stuff. And magically, it turned into a decent, somehow a decent wine at the end of the day. So that kind of changed my philosophy on things. If you give them enough time and you have patience and you're not too heavy-handed when it comes to winemaking, and as a grape grower, I'm very much uh, non-intervention, like kind of let them do their thing, don't use pumps, minimal racking, old barrels, um, that to me is the best way to let the wine kind of become what it is potentially can become. Um, so yeah, back to your question. I don't think so. I think um, the Cab Franc in retrospect, I, I don't know that it was a mistake because we couldn't have foreseen uh, the virus that was in those vines. Um, but yeah, there's been years where we banged our head against the wall with Pinot most years. Uh, but when you taste the wine, you think it's well worth the effort at the end of the day. Um, Pinot Gris is another one. We, we didn't try it today. It's, it's one that um, we, it's our smallest planting. So we don't from year to year, um, we make it and it gets sold so fast. And that's part of the story as I, I we mentioned before that uh, it's gone before we have the ability to even release it or taste it. Uh, it's a fun one to make. We make it in a similar style to the Sauv Blanc in terms of the barrel portion. Um, yeah. So how many cases of, of wine are you making right now as five rows? So I think this year our total production was 850 cases, okay. and that's about the most we've ever done. Um, so for, for me, that's a lot. And you can see in here, that's, we we're, the stacks are down a bit, but um, it's what I can comfortably fit in here in terms of production and finished product because this barn acts as winery, retail, warehouse, doghouse, a little bit of everything. So, and I, I have to say, like, I love wineries where the retail space is on the production floor, but it's very cozy and nice here. If you've never been down here, it's 
farm tables with nice red table runners on them and, and beautiful glassware all set up. So you should come down and do a tasting down here if you haven't. Uh, one question I have then is if you're spending all your time riding on a tractor, uh, what do you attribute the success and the, uh, the cult following that this winery has built in relatively short time? Because you've only been open 10 years. True. Yeah. And I, so my first thought when you say that, and there's a couple of different things and I'm going to tie it back to, to the history and to, to the people who are most important. My dad does all of the tractor work. I am not ashamed to say it from those times when I was a little kid wanting to be on the tractor every day. I've written off the tractor work to the point where all of my time is spent tweaking the vines. I'm a geek when it comes to how those vines look, how they're balanced, treating each vine kind of as an individual and, and fashioning them to what I think will make the best wine and, and be the best translation of terroir. So, so it's a misconception for me to put out there that I do all the tractor work. It's definitely my dad. So the family is all still involved. Exactly. So that's, that's been a big part. Realizing that we could make more wine. Obviously, we only use 10 or 15% of what we grow. But knowing what works for us as a family uh, and staying, sticking to our guns and staying uh, at a size where we're, it doesn't get away from us. And that brings in okay, the other okay, reason. Okay. One, I got one other thing. My mom and those who have been here and tasted wine uh, is the consummate host. And I'm embarrassed to be in here when she's in here because of what she says about me. So I try to like <laughs> let her be in here and do the tastings and I'm bury my head out in the vines. But uh, they come back partially because of the wines, but a large portion of that is because of her and her attention to relationship building uh, and never leaving anyone out and really being the consummate host. So you're not on the winery map. And right. that's obviously by choice. Right. Um, and to Andre's uh, terminology of like a, like that cult winery, mm -hmm. you really have it kind of like what 13th Street used to be like in their really early days. Right. You, the only reason, way you knew that 13th Street existed was you drove by and went, hey, is that a winery? And then you got on their email list and there was that email that shot into your inbox that said, we're having our release weekend. And that was pretty much the only time that they were actually open right. to the public is you could walk in during release weekend, you know, have a hot dog or a burger or a sausage or whatever else they would do, try all the new wines mm -hmm. and people would snap them up by the case yeah. and then, you know, they'd be done. It's, that's so true. And that's kind of the model we've, we've morphed into where we do our one release a year. Um, and the, um, the large portion of that wine after the email goes out gets spoken for on pre-orders and then we're open until the rest of it's gone, which usually is, uh, if we open in June, we're usually done by August. So, Holy crap. um, it's, it's a good model in terms of being able to use the barn again for winery <laughs> winemaking in the fall. Uh, but it does become a challenge, um, when you gain a little more exposure and the retail becomes really busy on some days and you don't have the ability to maybe have that sit down tasting with people that you always have had. So I think if there's any tweak to the formula going forward, it would be potentially like maybe 13th Street did or Danny Lanco where you go appointment only and it really allows you to keep the same kind of feel you've always had. So I think we are appointment as of right now during the week, all week. We're open retail hours on weekends until the wine's gone, but I think it's important for us to, to really go forward as the experience that we've always presented for people. So I think it's important like to anyone listening, uh, learning to and figuring out how to sell wine, that keyword experience, the wines have to be good, but if you can offer an experience that is unbelievably important. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in my communications with you, well before I made it to the winery, you've always been so great answering emails. So it's, it's clear that there's a passion. Except for radio silence. Your radio silence. <laughs> when you want him to talk in an interview, that's when he's like, wait a second, I don't know if I really want to do this. Uh, I do get afraid of, of the media sometimes, and mainly because there was one article about our wine uh, early on by Beppe Crisario and it blew us up. It complete, we went from, from, you know, having to be open all year, uh, essentially to selling out as quick as we did because he wrote about our Pinot and his experience kind of stumbling upon our little roadside sign. So it's, 
I think it was, it's part of our evolution and you have times like that where someone is kind enough to say nice things about your wine and, and all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's a whole another audience for you. So, um, so I, w- I would say I'm, I'm wary in a, in a good way and I, I really, I'm appreciative of it more than anything else. Now, I know this is usually your question and this is the, usually how we end these with okay. any legacy podcast. I'm going to ask it this time. Go for it. But I'm used to, we're used to having people who are, you know, much older and, you know, have that, you know, history behind okay. them of well, working in the industry. Or he grew up on the farm. But he worked, yeah. grew up on the farm. So it seems right to ask somebody young and is going to be around for a while. Okay. Where do you see the Ontario wine industry going and the great variety of Ontario? Those mm-hmm. are the two questions I think we always Always end on the, so. the variety question usually ends up in the middle, but yeah. So let's <laughs> yeah, go for it. Two of them. In terms of variety, you mean like what varieties will be known for? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the first thing is, um, I look at it when I when I look forward, and I have to do this because I'm planning, making decisions on on the future of vines and what to plant and how to trellis our vines. That a big part of it for me is climate, and and what we've been dealing with. What seems like the last five years or so in terms of climate extremes versus some consistent patterns that my dad will tell you, you used to be able to count on rain now and then, and you used to have, you know, the odd cold winter, but not the extremes that we face. So whether it's a storm, whether it's extreme heat, whether it's uh, long stretches without rain, humidity is a big deal in the summertime for disease pressure. Uh, dealing with um, pests that we've never dealt with before because they're coming up further from the south, Um, viruses that we've never dealt with in the past. All of that kind of scares me a little bit um, because I can't count on the things that I could count on. We're known as a cool climate, but as we all know, it may be inching a little bit warmer. So that can be a good thing for certain varietals, but it can be problematic for things like aromatic whites where you're trying to preserve that acidity and the freshness of the wine. So that's something I'm cognizant of even now. Um, but I do think going forward, it's something whether we have to invest in irrigation equipment better than we have now, um, whether we have to buy more windmills uh, to service the whole property. Um, that's that's going to be something we have to look at going forward. So that's from a vineyard and personal standpoint. In terms of the industry as a whole, I... I mean, I've seen it from the early days, like we talked about the Brights and the Shadow Gay and the Venturas and the Agawams transition from the early days in Enniskillen where Debbie Pratt was my grade three teacher, believe it or not. So I had a connection yeah. with Debbie dating back to grade three um, and all the wineries I've worked with. The num- one of the number one things I'm noticing is the amount of enthusiastic younger people uh, who are either graduating from the Niagara College or Brock, who are so awesome to talk to uh, because they're so passionate about grape growing, winemaking, the industry as a whole, um, and the future and how their part of, of shaping the future is going to pan out. So I see that on a daily basis with uh, some of the employees we have here. Um, but I, I, I think the future of the industry is in amazing hands uh, based on what I'm seeing coming out of those, those institutions. Um, in terms of the wines and the styles and uh, the varietals that I think we'll, we'll be able to hang our hats on, I think it's a moving target. Because I, I know for me it's Pinot, Chard, Riesling, Cab Franc are your four staples. Um, and, and you don't have two of them. And I don't have two of them, right. So, or Gamay. Or Gamay is another one. And that's another one I thought seriously about based on the popularity of uh, people coming in all the time. Why don't you make a Gamay? Why don't you grow Gamay? So it's a, there's, there's an increase in popularity there. But I am seeing more commitment to pr- premium wines by small producers with interesting varietals like Viognier and Semillon and, and things that maybe push the envelope a little bit in terms of what we can plant and grow. And I think that's neat. I think you can always have those varietals that are going to drive the train of of the success of an industry but to try some new things and try some interesting things and um like some of the wines we tasted today they not everyone is going to want to grow some of those varietals but um if you do and if you're able to get them through winter you can uh, you can do some neat things with them 
Wes, we'd like to thank you for your time today. Thank you for t letting us taste your wines. Awesome. Uh, fantastic. Uh, continued success. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you coming down and uh, back out to the field. Hopefully by the time this podcast <laughs> is posted, not everything is sold out. But it's like I said, I came down here for my right. first tasting last year. And it was just incredibly memorable. And this is definitely a place worth checking out. It's yeah. the Syrah that I'm excited for. Yeah, and Sauvignon actually, Blanc, Michael. Syrah, my friend. Uh, Sauvignon Syrah. Blanc, Michael. <laughs> no, Sauvignon Blanc. Goodbye, Andre. <laughs> I enjoyed that Syrah so much. I was amazed at how quickly that Syrah evolved from meaty and smoky to having some good fruit at the end. But um, I'm still in love with the white wines. Uh, I really, I really love that Riesling. Um, it's interesting to see the Alsace clone 49 on its own because there is a lot of, of Vice 21. And I, I know I've tried to talk to winemakers about clones, but there's a whole bunch planted everywhere. But this does taste very different than what you would expect from some of the other heavy hitters at Cave Spring, Featherstone, Vineland. It's, it's got a very almost more rich texture on the palate, which I really enjoy while maintaining its acidity. You know, I, I guess I do wear my, my red wine love on my on my sleeve, as you wear Chardonnay on, mm -hmm. on yours. And um, things we didn't talk about in that podcast, obviously, is Pinot. That's, it was an, it's a no-brainer. I didn't, I, it, Pinot gets love yep. pretty much everywhere and in every bottle that it gets into. So we didn't, didn't talk about that. The Sauvignon Blanc. The place is known for Sauvignon Blanc. That's what I fell in love with last year. And we talk about it being open and only for a couple months of the year. I tasted, I think it was July. I don't even think it was that far into the season last year, and it was already sold out. Yeah. So, and, then, and then they make a Cab so, which is which was also we could have featured all five of those yep. wines, and you know that Pinot Gris that he says gets sold out like that. Well, let me tell you, you can visit AndreWineReview.ca or MichaelPickusWineReview.com. I'm sure we have some notes coming up shortly. Uh, they will definitely be posted on my website for the whole portfolio. And if your first choice is sold out, like just honestly grab something from this winery while you can it's worth it to have the bottle in the cellar and they're, they're gorgeous bottles i yeah. love the labels the labels are pretty yeah and you can register them yes yes i think we talked a little bit about like the cult status that this winery has but it's something cool we didn't touch on in the podcast you can register the bottle on their website and when you open it make a tasting note and share your experience and you can see what other people who have tasted their wines have said about the wines they've tasted from the winery and i I've got to go look at that myself. Yeah, it's cool. Because personally, what I what I think my note would have been for the Syrah would have been, oh, shit, this is good. But then i got to say a little more. No, you don't need to. You think it's good enough? Yeah, sometimes sometimes silence speaks louder than words. And, and, I, and I think, you know, you're probably thinking to yourself, that podcast with Wes Lowry, you're thinking, shit, that was good. Yeah. We're going to have more of those. I Yes. I'm, I, I we. We'll have to find an excuse to get Wes on again in the future because he is passionate and down to earth, and it's a really, really nice combination. And it's just more evidence that uh, the industry is in great hands. We should send this one to Donald Zeraldo. See what he thinks. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Uh, check out our reviews. I know we already gave the websites a shout out. So Michael, you want to take it away? I'm Michael Pingus of MichaelPinguswineReview.com. He's Andre Pru of AndreWineReview.ca. And good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.